listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Psalm 19 So let's hear God's word. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, here at Trinity, we're spending a few weeks looking at uh, different psalms in the Bible. Uh, Psalms are poems or songs that were written at various points in the history of God's people, the people of Israel, before the time of the New Testament. And we're focusing in this short sermon series on three psalms that tell us that, that all about God's law, focus on God's law. Uh, when the law is referred to in the Bible, it's often referring to God's instruction to us. That is a, a basic summary of what the law is. It is instruction from God. Um, the term used to refer to what God instructs us to do, but also what God instructs us to know. That includes the Ten Commandments, which is perhaps what first comes to mind when we think about God's law. And it's certainly true that the Ten Commandments are at the heart of God's instruction to us. But the law of God does refer to God's instruction in a broader sense too. That to all that God instructs us to know and to do in the Bible. <coughs> now, for many of us, now often when we think of God's law, we think of it as something negative. Quite simply, We don't like being told what to do. Excuse me. (coughs) Um, Think of of that piece of advice we'll often hear when it 
comes to getting somebody else to do something that we want them to do. And the trick is, the advice goes, to get them to think that it is their idea. Now, why, why does that advice seem to work? It's because people don't like being told what to do. They like to think of it, they're doing it of their own volition. They're choosing what to do. We don't like being told what to do. Um, we watched uh, the new Top Gun movie last week. And uh, there are a couple of interesting exchanges in the film when it comes to the subject of being told what to do. At the beginning of the film, uh, the US Navy pilot named Maverick, the character played by Tom Cruise, uh, he hears about the plans that his admiral, uh, the one who's, who has authority over the Navy program that Maverick's a part of, hears that his admiral wants to close down that particular program. So Maverick quickly gets into his plane, takes off to try and prove by his flying that the program's worth keeping. And as he takes off, the Admiral arrives at Maverick's Navy base and heads to the control room where all of the flight analysts and Navy officers are monitoring Maverick's flight. And when the Admiral Admiral comes in, Maverick's uh, immediate superior officer comes on the radio to Maverick and says something like, Maverick, the Admiral is inviting you back to base. To which the Admiral replies, ordering. Not inviting, ordering. A little while later in the film, Maverick's redeployed to a Navy training centre to train the Navy's most elite pe- uh, pilots, um, the same training centre where Maverick himself had trained when he was younger. And when he arrives there, he turns to one of the commanding officers in charge and he says, I must admit, I wasn't expecting the invitation back. And the Admiral replies, they're called orders, Maverick. Uh, it's interesting because it points to the fact that Maverick doesn't like obeying orders. He's happy to think in terms of accepting an invitation but not in terms of obeying commands. The same can be often true for us. Not only when it comes to receiving orders from others, (coughs) but also when it comes to being given commands from God and his law. There's something in us that doesn't like it. Something in us that doesn't want to be told what to do. And so often we try not to think about God's law because we view it only as a negative thing. When we come to the Psalms, what we find in the Psalms, particularly in the Psalms we're looking at, is an attitude towards the law that just jars with that attitude that we often have. Particularly Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119 that we're looking at in these three weeks, they, they speak of the law in an overwhelmingly positive manner. In Psalm 1, at uh, the beginning of the whole book, we read that the blessed person, the truly happy person, delights in the law of God. On his law, he meditates, he thinks day and night. The law for for that person is not something that he tries not to think about, but something that he deliberately does think about. In Psalm 19, uh, the psalm we read a a moment ago, we read that the law of the Lord is something that is perfect. Something that revives the soul, rejoices the heart. There's no ill feeling towards the law here, but it's quite the opposite. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What are we missing? When we don't delight in thinking about the law, when it isn't something that rejoices our heart, what are we missing? And that's the question that we're pondering as we spend these few weeks looking at these few psalms today, Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis once described Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Uh, You can have it out with him, whether whether you agree or disagree. Um, but whether, whether you agree or disagree, there is nonetheless a beauty to the poetry, isn't there, in Psalm 19. And there's a simplicity to it as well. There are basically two main parts of the psalm. The, the first six verses, the first block of text, 
in the order of worship or on the page in your Bible is, is all about creation. The skies, the rhythm of day and night, the sun. And the second main part in verses 7 to 11 is all about the law. Described in all these different ways, testimony, precepts, commandment, rules. And then in light of these two subjects, the writer ends with a closing reflection and a prayer in the final few verses. There's a beautiful simplicity about it. And the tone of, this fam- of the psalm is this famous first line. It's set by this famous first line. The heavens declare the glory of God. This is a psalm uh, all about the glory of God being declared, being revealed. His glory is declared in the world he has made and in the law he has given. So I want us to look at three things in this psalm. I want us to see God's glory in creation, God's glory in the law, and God's glory in us. So first of all, God's glory in creation, God's glory declared in the world he has created. Uh, This is exactly what the opening line states, as we've seen, doesn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Uh, It's as though the writer of the psalm, King David, slows down, looks up, and reflects on all that he observes. Some of you have been to beautiful places, perhaps even this summer, uh, and you've witnessed some incredible scenery, some amazing sky scenes, perhaps. And perhaps when you, you stood or sat or lay there, it felt as though you were, in a way, being addressed by what you saw. Such was the beauty that you were able to behold. It was as though you were being spoken to. Well, that's the scenario that the writer is presenting to us. And he presented to us by playing with this idea of there being, in the beauty of the world, a kind of wordless speech. So just look at the words that he uses to describe what the heavens and the day and night and, and, and the skies do. Verse 1, they declare and proclaim Uh, Verse 2, they pour out speech. And they don't do that in a literal sense, because in verse 3 we're told there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. And yet, in a very real sense, as verse 4 goes on, their voice does go out through all the earth, and their words do go out to the end of the world. There is no speech, no words, no voice. But there is. And this is the idea that David's playing with, that when we see the beauty of the world around us, we, in a sense, hear a wordless speech, a message proclaimed without words. And this message is a message that creation never tires of proclaiming. The same message that was heard by King David thousands of years ago is declared to us today when we observe the beauty of the world. And the message is this. The God who made all of this is glorious. The message that is declared by this world in all its beauty, it's not a message that draws attention to this world. The heavens do not declare their own glory. They don't declare the glory of any other part of creation, including us as creatures. But the heavens declare the glory of God. The beauty that we see around us exists so that we might be addressed by it in no uncertain terms. The God who made this is glorious. 
There is a lot to be said for taking the time to get outdoors and to enjoy creation. And a lot of us do so sometimes because we want to clear our heads, we say. In a sense, we, we want to hear something from creation. Well, that's fine. As long as you know that the message creation proclaims to you has not changed. It was then and is now simply, God is glorious. You won't find detailed instruction for how to live in beholding a stunning mountain range. You won't find the guidance that you seek simply by being on an enjoyable walk or a relaxing beach or wherever. As good as those things are, what you will find if you have the eyes to hear it, as it were, is the age-old message that this world continues to declare, the one who made this is glorious. You think this is beautiful, the scene asks you, and you should see the one who's behind it. And incidentally, more often than not, you'll also find that message to be exactly the message you needed when you set out to clear your head. When you slow down and look up as David did and in the beauty of this world, you behold the glory of your creator. Everything else tends then to be seen in its proper perspective. Do you feel your lack of wisdom? Are you nervous about the future? The sunrise or the sunset won't show you what to do. But it will say to you in a sense, if your creator is this glorious glorious enough to envisage and to create this, then what are you doing worrying about that? And so you ought to go away, not with answers, but with perspective, a perspective that's shaped rightly with God at the centre and everything else in its right place in light of who he is and how glorious he is. But you also ought to go away with another thought, a new thought. If God is this glorious, if all his works are good then is there anywhere else I can go to where I can find more detailed guidance, where I can find the wisdom that I need? And the answer is yes, the law. So we've seen that God's glory is declared in creation. Secondly, I want us to look at God's glory declared in the law. This is what the second part of the psalm is all about. It begins in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the opening verse of this section, again, functions as a summary for all the lines of poetry that follow it in verses 7 to 11. One Bible scholar who's done a lot of work on the Psalms, a man named Derek Kidner, uh, helpfully analyzes this part of the Psalm by looking at the different words that are used in relation to the law. So first, the nouns, uh, that is each word that's used to refer to the law, testimony, precepts, commandments, so on. And then the adjectives, that's each word that's describing what the law is like, perfect, sure, right, and so on. And then the verbs, what the law does, reviving, making wise, rejoicing, and so on. So looking at the nouns in verses 7 to 11, the words that are used to refer to the law in different ways, we we see different aspects of the law communicated to us. The first word, uh, simply straightforward, the word law in verse 7. The word law is a comprehensive term referring to God's instruction as a whole, referring to the whole thing. The second word in verse 7, the word testimony, it's a word that communicates truth and truthfulness. 
It shows us that the law is testimony from God himself. In the law, God testifies to us what is true. The two words in verse 8, precepts and commandments, speak to us of two things. Firstly, they speak to us of God's authority, because he is the one who is authorised to give us commandments. He is authorised to command us. He's the chief commanding officer, as it were. But secondly, these words, precepts and commandments, speak to us of the detail and the precision with which God commands us. There is a detail to the law that is more precise than mere broad principles to live by. God has not given us life philosophies, but precepts and commandments. The word fear in verse 9, the fear of the Lord, it's a word that, that tells us what the right response to God's law is. We ought to revere God. We ought to give him the respect he is owed by respecting his law. And this reverence and this respect, this fear, uh, it's in no way to be an untrusting reverence. It's not to be born out of fearful concern as to what this God might do at any given moment. Because the second word that's used to describe the law in verse 9, the word rules, is speaking not so much of rules as we might speak of rules, but speaking of God's rulings, his judgments. And it's speaking of them as being true. That is, they're dependable. God isn't going to move the goalposts and deliver any surprise verdicts on his judgments. In fact, his rules, we're told in the final line of verse 9, are righteous altogether. I just think of what it would be like to live in a nation that was governed in that way. To live under a government that was altogether righteous. It would be bliss. We'd never need to be suspicious of any law or any policy or any agenda. Everything would be right and dependable. It would be perfect. Which brings us back around to the summary in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. And because the law of the Lord is perfect, because it is sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous, the verbs, that is the the effect the law should have on us, make complete sense. Verse 7, this perfect law revives the soul, it makes us wise. Verse 8, it it rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. Verse 9, it endures forever. All of which gives us a vivid picture of the law of God and it shows us how the law declares God's glory. Just as creation reflects the glory of its creator, the law reflects the glory of the lawgiver. The reason the law is perfect is because the lawgiver is perfect. The reason the law is sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous is because God is sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous this is who God is and he reveals his glory to us not only in creation but also in the law which does mean that our view of the law does to a degree reveal our view of God if we think the law is solely a negative thing if we think of it as something that's outdated and irrelevant And what does that say about how we view the God who gave the law? Can the law that this God gives, this God who is perfect and sure and true, can his law 
ever become irrelevant. If we don't find in our heart the same delight for God's law that's expressed here in Psalm 19, that's spoken of in Psalm 1, what does it say of our view of the God who gave it? Do we think that the authority of our creator does not extend to governing our lives as our lawgiver? Do we think that this God who is perfect, pure, clean, would simply say to us, don't worry about how you live, and grant the authority to govern what we're to do to us who are imperfect, impure, unclean? Isn't that what we're in effect saying when we dismiss the law as irrelevant? Before we move on, I want to focus just on one aspect of the law that this psalm draws out with the words precepts and commandments in verse 8. Um, these words speak of the detail with which God commands us. There is a, a detail to God's law that should penetrate our lives more deeply than just broad principles to live by. Is that, is that how you view God's law, God's instruction to you for how you ought to live? I think today that we tend to overlook this point and to overlook it in favour of viewing the law simply as just general law to live by. We sometimes think things like, well, as long as my heart is in the right place, God will be pleased with that. But if our heart is truly in the right place, wouldn't we be eager to find out how, God, how God's law applies to the specific situations that we find ourselves in? Wouldn't we want to be attentive to the commands that God has given regarding how we're to work, what we're to prioritise, what the rhythm of our week should be like, how exactly we're to love others? If our heart was in the right place, if we're genuinely seeking to honour God in the way we live our lives, wouldn't we be like the man of Psalm 1, diligently thinking about God's word day and night? We don't live like that in our other relationships, do we? We are with the people we love careful to pay attention to what they like and what they don't like and don't you pay careful attention to what they like and don't like precisely because you love them so that you can buy them a gift that you think they'll appreciate so that you can ask them about the things they're interested in and so on why are we so often so slow to pay careful attention to what pleases god Do we not love him? In our claim to love him, are we actually only loving ourselves? Because we're unwilling to pay attention to what pleases him, and instead we're thinking more about what pleases us? The law of the Lord is detailed, it's precise. It contains specific commandments that apply in specific ways to the way we live our lives. That's why we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments in in the autumn. It's why... We ought to think on the law of the Lord day and night, as Psalm 1 says. It's why our desire and our prayer ought to be what we find at the end of Psalm 19. Because in the detail of the law, we find more of the glory of God, the perfect God, who knows how to perfectly govern our lives. There is one final question that we need to answer as we close, and it's this. What's the connection between the two parts of the psalm? People who study poetry, some of you have, some of you do. Uh, People who study poetry tell us that when a poet puts two subjects side by side and they don't make it clear what the link is, 
the poet's drawing you in to ponder what the connection might be. What's the connection between creation and the law? Well, I think one of the connections is this. It's under our, our third final heading, God's glory in us. What does it mean, God, God's glory in us? Well, one of the ways that the two parts of the psalm are joined together. The first part, which is all about creation. The second part, which is all about the law. One of the ways they're joined together is by the section from the end of verse 4 to the end of verse 6. All about the sun. In them, David writes in, in verse 4, in the heavens... He's talking about, in the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun is, is personified here, spoken of as though it's a person. And it's described in glorious terms. The sun is a bridegroom on his wedding day. The son is a strong man or a warrior completing the course that is assigned for him. And the son perfectly fulfills its purpose. Day after day, completing its circuit, as it were. Day after day, its rays providing the warmth that is needed to varying degrees all around the world. Something glorious about it, isn't it? Well, how does this connect the two parts of the psalm? Because the, the sun runs its course. The sun completes the circuit it's assigned. That is to say, the sun functions according to the law it's given. And as a result, there's a glory about it. If the sun didn't function in that way, if it failed to heat the earth, if it was unpredictable in its location, in its rising, in its setting, then we wouldn't describe it as being glorious. It would be defective, dysfunctional, failing to display the glory for which it was designed because it would be failing to function according to its law. Because the sun and the created world functions, though, according to the law it is given, it flourishes and its beauty declares the glory of its maker. And in the same way, when we human beings live according to the law God has given to us, we flourish. A life lived according to God's law is another voice added to the voice of creation declaring the glory of God. Friends, when when you pay careful attention to God's law and live by it, your life displays something of the beauty it was intended to display and it declares in some measure the glory of God you were designed to glorify. God's law is not something that restricts you in a negative way, as though you were destined for greater things, but God's law holds you back. It is true, though, that God's law restricts you. It commands you, it gives you orders in what to do and what not to do. But that restriction is a good restriction because it guides you in living according to your design. And when things function as they ought to, They flourish. Their beauty is seen. Every now and then a news report pops up, doesn't it? Reporting of a a whale that's stranded on a beach somewhere. And uh, when you see clips and pictures of a whale swimming in the sea, there is something glorious about it. But when you see the images of it stuck on the beach, you, you don't have that same response, do you? 
Instead, there's a sense of tragedy about it. Something's gone wrong. Why is that? What's the difference? It's the same creature on land as it is in the sea. The difference is that it's strayed beyond the boundaries in which it's designed to flourish. It's designed to be in the sea and to swim. So when you see it on the beach, you don't think, isn't it great to see that creature living how it wants, removing any restrictions that holds it back? It's the same for us human beings. We've been designed to live according to God's law, and a life lived according to the law is not a life that's held back, but a life that truly flourishes. It's human life as it was meant to be. And this becomes even clearer when we see what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. He is the one who is truly glorious. He is the one whose glory the heavens declare. And he came into this world, this world that declares his glory as a creature, as a human being, as part of his creation. And when he came, how did he live? He lived according to the law. He paid careful attention to God's instruction in the Bible. He obeyed it perfectly. One old writer, Andrew Bonner, puts it like this. He says, there was once in our world one who used this psalm and was guided by it to gaze on the glory of God in the heavens and in the law. Our Lord and Saviour loved his Father's works and word. Often did he sit on the high mountains of the land of Israel or look abroad over its plains and then turn upward to the blue canopy over all to adore his Father. And often did he unroll the volume of the book or sit listening to its words read in the synagogue. Friends, The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect human being. He is the most human human being who has ever lived. How did this perfect human being live? Lived according to God's law. And this perfect human being offered up his perfect life as a sacrifice for all of our law breaking. And he rose again to new life. A new life which he shares with all who trust in him. A new life in which we're enabled to go and live according to the law we were designed to live by. A new life in which as we live according to it, we flourish. And we join the heavens in declaring the glory of God. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come again this week to think about your law, to think about all that you've instructed us in. Lord, we confess to you our sins. We confess to you all the many ways in which we have dismissed your law, in which we have not paid careful attention to it. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who in many ways is the embodiment of all that is good in this psalm, the one who well, the one whose glory has forever been declared and the one who came as a human being and perfectly kept your law. Lord, we praise you that he offered up his life in our place and we praise you that through faith in him we are enabled to go and live as we were designed to live. So help us, we pray, help us to 
Think on, on your word, think on your law. Help us to know how it applies in specific situations in our lives. And we ask that you would give us the willingness, the desire, the courage to live according to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.